und herzlich willkommen bei Multilingual Stories. Mein Name ist Dr. Bettina Gruber und ich bin die Linguistin. Ich unterstütze voller Begeisterung mehrsprachige Familien mit Herz und Verstand auf ihrem individuellen Weg, damit ihre Kinder alle Familiensprachen erfolgreich und mit Leichtigkeit lernen können. In meinem Podcast bekommst du sehr persönliche Geschichten von Mehrsprachigkeit aus der ganzen Welt zu hören. Lehn dich zurück und lass dich inspirieren. Hello and welcome to Multilingual Stories. I am so excited. This episode has very long been in the making. Yes, literally, I kid you not. Claudia Serrano Johnson, it's such a pleasure to have you here. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me to chat with your audience for a few minutes. It, I, it's such an honor to be here. It's so great to finally personally meet you, at least over Zoom life. Claudia, do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us, who are you? Where do you come from? What do we need to know about you? Sure. So my name, like she said already, is uh, Claudia Serrano Johnson, and I was actually born and raised in Colombia, South America, and I lived there until I was 13. Um, and at that point, my parents moved to the United States, and because I was 13, I had to move with them. I did have at the time, and I still do, have two older brothers who were old enough to not have to come with oh, us. Wow. So their, their story is a little bit different than mine, but because I was uh, young enough to still be dependent on my parents, I immigrated with them. What do you remember about that time? I mean, 13, you will probably remember quite a bit and at the same time maybe have deleted some of it. <laughs> What do I you remember? remember absolutely everything. Everything. Yes. I was old enough to remember everything and I naturally have a really good memory. So I can still visually remember most of my days from when I moved. How was it? Did you speak any English when you came to the States? So I grew up in a primarily monolingual Spanish-speaking country and community and family. Um, and so that was definitely my proficient language, my dominant language. Um, I did have the opportunity of going to a school where we were taught English. Mm -hmm. And so we had um, several classes, um, like English grammar, um, English literature, and then our math and our science were in English. Mm -hmm. And then everything else was in Spanish. So I had an academic foundation of English, but never did I ever socially communicate in English prior to moving to the U.S. And so I had a good foundation, but it was still a really big adjustment linguistically and culturally. And culturally, yes, Colombia. I mean, that's a whole different world, right? Yes. So really how did you, I mean, this could go either way, right? At 13, which is, you know, a time of transition anyways, and tricky for a lot of us anyways. How did you feel about it? Did you embrace it or were you like really fed up? I sobbed when my parents told me. Mm -hmm. um, I just remember crying so hard and 
telling them that I was going to lose all my friends and that I wasn't going to be able to experience the quinceañeras, which are a big deal um, in Latin America. And that, funnily, it's funny enough, I cried and I said, I'm going to have to marry an American man. <laughs> Which oh is funny God. because I did end up because marrying you did. an incredible <laughs> American man. <laughs> um, so yes, when when they told me the news, I cried a lot. But you know what? Once we moved here, I'm very adaptable in mm-hmm. my personality. And I just went with it. You know, I think there was a lot of grace given to us um, in the process. And so I think that once we got here, I just rolled with the punches. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. What do you remember about the linguistic adjustment? I just remember trying to assimilate. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I was in middle school. So I was in seventh grade. And like you said, you know, that is a really fragile time of development when it comes to self-esteem and self-development. And so I just remember thinking, I don't want to stand out linguistically or um, physically. And so my coping mechanism was just to assimilate, to look as American as I could, which I already do. If people who don't know me um, are just listening, I am a white presenting Latina with blue eyes. And so, you know, I can physically blend in pretty easily um, here in the United States. But linguistically, I just remember thinking as a young 13-year-old, sound American, sound American, make your words sound American, you know. And you managed amazingly. Well, I tried really hard and I, and that is a really, um, a prime time of language development. You know, it's kind of like the cusp of when, um, people who learn languages can learn it in a pretty native like manner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you ever have moments where, a Spanish or Latin American um, accent comes through in your English? Oh, for sure. All the time, all day, every day. Um, My phonological or phonetic system. So because, okay, so I'm a speech pathologist. So I'm going to be nerdy for a second. Of course, come on. I 100% speak English through the phonetic system of Spanish, right? Because that was what I grew up hearing and speaking. Mm -hmm. And as much as I try to speak with American phonetics, um, I I still stumble upon my phonemes. You know, my my phonological Mm -hmm. systems still um, have cross-linguistic influence, Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, all the time, which I used to be really embarrassed about. Really? I think it's so funny. I mean, if, you know, if somebody's listening, who's been listening to my podcast for longer, he or she will know that story, but you don't know the story. So I am going to tell you. (laughs) So my husband is Greek and, uh, he went to the States when he was 17 to study there. And he had the exact same thought process that you had. He was like, I do not want to be recognized as a Greek 
American. I don't, I don't want that. I want to sound 100% American. So he trained himself to lose the, the entire Greek accent. So when I met him years later, there was no Greek accent whatsoever to be found. And then the first time we went to Greece to see his parents, the first time I met his parents, his parents, they spoke English or speak English um, because they also lived in the UK. And uh, his dad is a professor of history. So, you know, he knew he we could converse in English. There was no problem at all. But sometimes his dad would not understand something that I said or somebody else said in the family. And I was sitting on the couch and, you know, I, I can tell my husband wants to tell um, my father-in-law what was just said. And I expected him to translate it into Greek. But what he did instead was repeat the whole thing in English with a Greek accent. <laughs> I, I love that. that hilarious because he can, he can turn it on. And sometimes when he's really tired, it's very rare, but sometimes when he's really tired, um, he, it, it like, he has some slips, like there is no length uh, difference in Greek in the vowels. Mm -hmm. So in English, they're really important. Mm -hmm. So he makes these mistakes, like, you know, um, um, sheet, the sheet mistake, you know, <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. so funny because he doesn't usually do it, but sometimes, you know, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely understand. Um, yeah. And I think most people who don't know about phonetics don't hear it in me, but all mm -hmm. of my speech pathology friends, they're like, oh, I can hear, I can hear your quote unquote accent because a lot of it actually has to do with um, like the z sound in English, which doesn't exist in Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, so I replace it with us. So mm -hmm. people just think that I sound a little bit more whistly. Yeah. Um, that's because I'm not voicing my z mm -hmm. sounds in English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what made you decide that you wanted to become a speech uh, language, a language um, pathologist? Did you know that I also offer one-on-one -on -one consultations and packages in English? If you are currently facing challenges in your multilingual family life, or if you simply don't know how to best include all your languages, just send me an email and tell me about your struggles. I promise you, you can overcome whatever hurdles you are facing. Just drop me a line and I will personally get back to you. I look forward to hearing from you. So it's definitely not what I had planned to go into professionally. I had always thought maybe um, I wanted to be a pediatrician um, or an educator or a child psychologist. So I definitely wanted to do something related to childhood development, um, but I had no idea that this field existed. Um, and most people actually don't unless they have come hand in hand with it through a sibling or them, themselves receiving speech therapy or a sibling or their parent is a speech therapist. But the general population doesn't know about this profession um, all that much. But when I was in high school, I went to, this is really nerdy, but I went to a summer camp for kids who wanted to go into medical school. 
And at that summer camp, they had different breakout sessions of different um, areas of expertise. So, you know, they had uh, pediatrics and cardiology and neurology, but I arrived late to the summer camp because I was at a different one. (laughs) And so I missed out on signing up for all these breakout sessions and I got stuck with all the ones that were empty. (laughs) So I ended up going to podiatry, like the the (laughs) science of feet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you did not choose that? (laughs) No, I did not. And speech pathology. Okay. Uh, Our national association is located here near Washington, D.C., and they had had um, someone from their association come to do a little breakout session And it was the first time I had ever heard of the profession. And I was like, wait, wait a moment. This combines everything I'm interested in. This Mm -hmm. combines some of the medical side I'm interested in, childhood development, the linguistics, the educational side of it. And I just fell in love with it. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. like, you would have never chosen that probably had you been on time. Never. Never. Life, huh? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Amazing. So then when I went to um, my undergraduate uh, years to get my bachelor's degree, um, I wanted to continue studying Spanish academically. And so I double majored in communication disorders, which is the undergraduate program for speech pathology. But then I also um, kept taking classes in Spanish and my university had a department um, for Spanish linguistics. Mm-hmm. And I just fell in love. I mean, I had never taken linguistics classes before my college years. And I absolutely fell in love. And at one point I realized I could marry the two mm-hmm. um, degrees and make it one. Um And fortunately, I had sought the advice from a professor and she was like, oh, actually, I know someone in Texas who runs a program for bilingual speech pathology. And I was like, oh, that exists. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. And so she put me in touch with this professor in Texas. and, And that's how I ended up at a program that specializes in bilingualism. So you went from Washington or near Washington to Texas. Where do you Mm -hmm. live now? Now we're back in Washington, D.C. Yeah, the suburbs. So about 45 minutes away from the city. So where did you meet the American husband? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love him. He so I, we met in college. I hope you do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. He's wonderful. He is so, so wonderful. Um, and I was definitely I I was proved wrong mm-hmm. <laughs> when I met him and married him about my fear of quote unquote having to marry an American guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we met in college and he double majored in Spanish and foreign affairs. So he naturally outside of our relationship loves languages and the world and culture and so I think that that obviously draws us together um and he speaks fluent Spanish and loves Latin America. Um, and so, yeah, that's where we met. So fast forward, you have two children, three. Three. You have three children, right? There was a third one. 
I don't remember, you know, before which pregnancy we wrote for the first time. <laughs> before my second pregnancy. I think so. And then and there so, was another baby. Yeah, that's why it was. it's been so challenging to touch base because I actually have debilitating pregnancies. Um, and so I got pregnant, I think we were in touch and then I got pregnant with my second and I was just out of commission. And then the pandemic started. Exactly. Um, and the whole world was kind of trying yeah. to figure out life. Um, and then I got pregnant with my third baby. He's our bonus baby. He's your bonus baby. How old is he now? He's one. He's one. Congratulations. Thank you. So you have three kids at home and, you know, obviously, so you have a huge Instagram account. This is how we connected through Instagram. So I know, of course, you do speak Spanish with your kids, but your husband's fluent in Spanish too. What's your home language? We speak Spanish. All of you. Yes. So um, this is a really fun story to tell. We, I always just assumed I would raise my children bilingually, but I never really had a plan in place, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Um, I do and, believe that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it's easy to just be like, it'll happen. It will, exactly, yeah. yeah. It will just naturally happen. And then you realize that it, that's harder. It's easier said than done. Yeah. Um, And when my firstborn was born, she had colic and it was a really difficult transition to parenthood. Um, So much so that our priority was just survival. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were just like trying to get her to be, you know, calm, to sleep, for us to sleep. Um, It was really, really rough. And so we just, because we were focused on caring for her and for us. We never really thought about bilingualism until she started saying her first words between 12 to 15 months. So you spoke English with her at the beginning. You Mm -hmm. did. Yeah. Wow. So you and your husband, you, when you met, what was your language? Yeah, our emotional language, our language was English. So even though we both could speak fluent Spanish, because we met in an English context, um, we always spoke English with one another, except for when we were at my house with my parents, and then we were all speaking Spanish. Okay. Um, Yeah, so when my daughter was born, we just spoke English with her for the first like 12 to 15 years. I mean, months. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then she started, right? Yes, yes, yes. She started saying her first words, and they were in English. And I think that really, um, was it really stood out to me. And I think Mm. it was like the first time that I really was able to sit with what was going on and realize, okay, if we don't change courses, you know, like this is not going to happen. Bilingualism in our home is not going to happen. Wow. So, but your parents are near you too. And they must have spoken Spanish with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she was exposed at least some. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So what did you do? You realized, oh, shoot, that's not what I wanted. What happened then? How did you transition? At that point, my husband and I sat down and had a very, quote unquote, formal conversation about what we wanted to do. And he said, you know what, I would love 
to speak some Spanish with our children. Um, and I know that sometimes for non-native speakers, that can be challenging because it's not their emotional language. Exactly, yes. But she was so little that a lot of our conversations with her were just very, you know, introductory, very basic. Um, and so he felt comfortable with that. Um, and so we decided to start changing to Spanish, which took I would say a solid 12 months to finally have it become habitual and natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, I have, um, I have a six months program and I have a lot of parents. So this is really designed for parents who experience challenges or who are not where they would like to be with their languages. So I end up, you know, I have a lot of families who actually never spoke the language at home or they had like a huge year long, two year, three long year long break. And then they come because they want to pick it up again or they want to pick it up in the first place. So I'm working with parents whose children are, you know, starting at the age of four up to 11. The oldest child was 11 when the mom started speaking German. And um, it's it's interesting that you say, you know, it's 12 months because this is also what I see. So it's a six months program, but a lot of the parents actually book a second, a second round, another six months. And then after a year, they feel like, you know, now I have like everything that I need to know and I know how to, you know, get out of it again in case I fall back into old habits. Mm-hmm. Um, do you sometimes fall back into English? Not really, not anymore with our children. Um, it did take a long time of trial and error and failing or going to, back to old habits and catching myself and then switching over again to Spanish. Um, but now it feels unnatural to speak mm-hmm. English with yeah. my children outside of English context. Mm-hmm. Um what we are still working on is my husband and I communicating in Spanish with one another. Mm-hmm. And we have gotten a lot better because at the beginning, what happened is we would speak Spanish with the child, with our kids and our kids with us. But between my husband mm-hmm. and I, we we're still communicating in English. And then our oldest started developing and maturing and catching on and realizing and actually calling us out on it. Why are you guys speaking English to each other? <laughs> Yeah. She's good accountability. (laughs) Yeah. And so once, you know, that dynamic started changing with her, um, we made the effort to switch over to Spanish together. And that has been, again, kind of the same scenario as when we tried with her. It's a lot of trial and error, a lot of catching ourselves and switching back and rebuilding that muscle. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's funny because a lot of times I catch him speaking Spanish to me and then I'm replying in English without even thinking. And then I'm like, why am I speaking English? (laughs) And then I go back to Spanish, you know, is there anything that has helped you stick with Spanish? Also, when you look back at the time when you actually started switching with your um, oldest child, is there anything that particularly helped you? I think the biggest impact was realizing that it was a process Mm -hmm. realizing that I wasn't going to be perfect at it. Yeah. And realizing that it was going to take time because at the beginning, when I found myself going back to the old habit of speaking English, it was really discouraging and it would have been really easy to just be like, this is too hard. 
Like, I'm never going to be good at this. This is never going to feel natural. Um, And I'm glad that I had the grace and the wisdom Mm. to persist because now on the other side of it, I'm like, oh, that's what feels natural now. Like the habit I was trying to build is now what is normal for us. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So at home, you speak Spanish 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, I mean, 100%, I would say 90% um, because we do use some borrowed words. Oh, who doesn't? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who doesn't? And we love that. But yeah, definitely our framework and our foundation is in Spanish. And then we have some little borrowers um, words. We do that with Greek at home, you know, um, and I, you know, I'm building. So I'm I'm working on improving my Greek. I have been working on improving my Greek so that I can speak it more at home. And the kids have gotten used to me speaking more Greek at home. Um, but it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not nearly as fluent as I could be after all these years. You know, my eldest is 10. But we use, you know, we like we have this trunk in the living room. That's basically our our coffee table at the couch. And we've been using the Greek name for that like forever. Like we've never ever called it anything other than the Greek. That's that's just the way it is, right? I love that. You know, that reminds me. Um, last week I was just thinking about our family. And did you know my husband is actually half Greek? You're kidding, really? He's half like Greek. Like half, like one of his parents is, but he didn't grow up with Greek. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another super fascinating story, probably for my mother-in-law to tell on her own. But um, my husband's grandmother, his yaya, um, was Greek. Like, she immigrated from Greece to the United States. Um, And so my mother-in-law grew up in a Greek household um, and, of course, assimilated to the American culture. Um, she understands a lot of Greek, but doesn't speak it as fluently. And then my husband is, you know, I guess that would be what, second? Yeah. Generation. generation. Yeah. Well, third um, generation, actually. Right? Yeah, third. Immigration and then third, yeah. Um, and so I was just thinking about how I want to start incorporating some of that um, in my home and br- yeah. like bringing awareness about it to my yes. children because it's a big part of their heritage. And I mean, you're talking about Yaya. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, my mother-in-law goes by Yaya and uh, my father-in-law doesn't go by Papu because he's American. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> but my husband's grandparents were Yaya and Papu. Um, yeah. Amazing. And, uh, he grew up with Kulurakias and yes. Melamakaramas. Mel- Mel- all the all the Greek cookies, the delicious. Greek yeah, cookies. amazing. That's great. Sorry. Um, so yeah. So you're trying to. It. So you're trying to incorporate that now, or at least think about how you can, you know, at least, you know, I think I think what's easy to do or relatively easy is just to create awareness, right? Cultural awareness, and you know, you have some of the words there already that you use, so that's cool. Yeah, it can just. I think what's paralyzing about it is that it can feel overwhelming. You know, I mean, I have such a diverse heritage that if I wanted to do the same on my side of the family, we have just as equivalent Italian roots, you know? And so I'm like, okay, what? I think we were just trying to tackle one thing at a time, which was 
switching over to Spanish. Of course. Um, yeah. And then now we're feeling a little bit more um, in a better place to start mm. adding on a little bit more about our other cultures and heritages. So how old are your children now? One and? Yeah. So I have a just turned one year old, a just turned three year old and an almost six year old. Oh, wow. okay, cool. <laughs> and they all, well, they all speak Spanish with you too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hardest switch was with our first um, and then the other ones were just born into it. Yeah. Yeah. You know that very often um, it's usually moms who come to me and seek help. And very often they come when they have a third child, the baby, and they realize that like the other two, they don't speak their language. And now they have like this third chance of making things right. Mm -hmm. And I always call those babies the joker babies. Because, you know, when you, it's easy, it's much easier to start speaking a language with a baby who doesn't respond than with an older child who maybe even says, you know, I'm not interested and stop that. I don't want that. Um, so it's, you know, it's always such a good place to start with a baby and then, you know, continue to the others. Yeah. Cause yes, you 100%. said hundred percent. And a baby is also an incentive for the older kids, yeah. right? Absolutely. Because they want to be able to care for them and speak with them yeah. and be part of the adventure of speaking a different language to the baby, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's a great um, opportunity for many yeah. families. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I already mentioned we met via Instagram and you have a huge account by now um, talking about bilingualism from your perspective as a speech language therapist. So what's your experience working with, so do you get to work a lot with bilingual families and what's your experience? Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So my area of focus and expertise is actual, actually called differential diagnosis. And so um what that means is I try to figure out or help families figure out if a child's communication difficulties are rooted in just typical second language acquisition, or if the child is truly having communication difficulties rooted in language learning needs mm -hmm. um, in both languages or any of the languages mm -hmm. that they're exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I work with a lot of families um, because we're so connected in social media and there are so many incredible experts and professionals um, that I have, I'm in contact with, I actually don't really counsel families on what you do, mm -hmm. um, because that's not, you know, that's not my area of expertise. And we have incredible professionals like you who know exactly how to walk a family through reactivating a passive language and all those things. So I counsel families more on um, bilingual language milestones, whether a child is meeting their language milestones mm -hmm. or if a child is not meeting their milestones, how can we then support their language development mm -hmm. um, to ensure that they can um, continue communicating in all their languages they're exposed to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, we talked about this before we started the recording, so maybe let's talk about it again, because one of the things that you and I get to hear all the time, and that both of us have been, you know, working a lot, communicating to the public, um, tell us, so do they start speaking later? 
(laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. Um, That is not the norm. Bilingual and multilingual children should meet their language milestones at a similar rate as monolingual children. Mm. So, you know, prior to their 12 months, they should be meeting pre-linguistic milestones so that those are um, the ability to be socially tuned into their surroundings, um, engaged with their caregiver through eye contact and um, or eye gaze and smiles, um, as well as with gestures, clapping, you know, and pointing and waving. Um, So it doesn't matter how many languages a child is exposed to, they should be developing those the first 12 months. Mm -hmm. And then they should be emerging, their first words should be emerging around 12 to 15 months, um, regardless of how many languages or which languages they speak. Um, So absolutely not. Now, there are multilingual children who could have delays, but it's not because they're hearing multiple languages. It's because of other reasons. Um, And it could just be genetics, or it could just be that they're predisposed to language learning difficulties. Mm -hmm. But that would be the case if they were exposed to one language, two, three, four, five, it didn't, it wouldn't matter how many languages they were hearing, they would have those language learning needs, no matter what. Mm. All right. So do you still actively work with families? Because you mentioned in the beginning that you you um, you also provide um, materials for other speech language um, pathologists. But do you also still yourself work actively with families? Yeah. So I work with families in two capacities. Um, I do still have my local business where mm-hmm. I provide speech language therapy services, evaluation services. But here in the United States, what happens is that we can only practice with children in the state that we're licensed. Mm-hmm. Um, so legally, we can only see clients within our licensing state. Okay. Um, and so working with kiddos, I just work locally. Now, the other capacity I support families in is through parent consults, and those I can do worldwide. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are primarily for parents who have concerns about their child's speech and language development um, in in multilingual families, and they want to reach out to me with questions and concerns. Um, And then we do like a three-month monitoring process where I provide tips and tricks to foster language development. And in those three months, we monitor if there's progress or not. Mm. And then if there is progress, awesome, we keep going. And if there isn't progress, then I refer them to a local speech pathologist Mm. that could provide uh, a more thorough evaluation and support. Mm. I see. Um, So you work with parents, do you work in English? Or do you work in Spanish? Or do you offer both? So I primarily work with Spanish English bilingual families, but because of the training I had in graduate school um, in my master's degree, I am equipped to work with culturally and linguistically diverse families. So, Mm -hmm. for example, right now I have a family and they are Romanian English bilingual and I don't speak Romanian, but because of my expertise and my training, I'm able to look at the case and the situation through a multicultural Mm -hmm. and multilingual lens and support the family in an appropriate way. Mm -hmm. So either 
we work with interpreters or we work with the parents in coaching them and being able to deliver the therapy services in their home language as well. All right. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Is there anything that you would have liked to talk about that we didn't get to talk about? No, I think we covered a lot. We covered a lot, right? So you, in case there is any other um, speech um, therapists listening, you do provide materials um, um, focusing on bilingual families and how to support them best, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I am in the process of developing professional development webinars for mm -hmm. speech pathologists. Um, I have a heart for monolingual speech pathologists, um, which in the United States is the majority of our profession. 92% of our profession is monolingual. And so I have a heart uh, for developing resources to support those speech pathologists who are working with diverse learners but don't speak the, the language. It's kind of like the situation I just explained to you. I don't speak Romanian, but I still am called ethically to support this family if they're not able to find a Romanian-speaking speech pathologist. Mm. So how do we go about that? Um, so yeah, uh, resources for speech pathologists to feel more confident and empowered in working with bilingual families, as well as um, some resources for parents mm -hmm. uh, to be able to better understand all different topics about bilingualism and feel more confident in bringing forth multilingualism in their families, especially with kids who have speech and language delays and disorders. I think that was probably the one thing we didn't talk about that I would love to mention. Sure. It's a question I get frequently, and that's if my child is diagnosed with a delay or a disorder, can we still pursue bilingualism or multilingualism? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, the literature shows us that children with delays and disorders are capable of learning multiple languages. It just means that they require more love, energy, and effort and input in those languages. But that would be the case if it was just one language or two or yeah. three. You know, they just need extra support with language learning. Um, it doesn't matter how many languages that's in. Um, so yes, please do not give up on bilingualism or multilingualism after a diagnosis of a delay or a disorder, yeah. if that is a priority for your family. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing that we know is um, like you would also be depriving the kids. Um, you know, if you take away a language, all of a sudden, um, you deprive the children of a part of the family um, or of, you know, being able to communicate with parts of the family if that language is taken away. Um, and the other thing I think that that's important in this case is to also know that we, I mean, you can support these children so amazingly that they make progress and they don't have to stay where they are and they don't have to be forever challenged um, but you can support them in such a way that they can actually overcome the challenges depending on the diagnosis that they have, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So monolingualism is not a cure. Um, <laughs> I love many, that. That's and, a good and, quote. <laughs> yeah, it's not mine. I, I think that I want to say that Dr. Um, K. Raining Bird 
either her or Dr. Conert. I'm not, I can't remember which one it is, but they're both incredible. Um, It's their quote. (laughs) It's an amazing quote. I love it. I haven't heard Um, it. Yeah. Yeah. Monolingualism is not a cure. And um, you'd be surprised how many people um, prescribe monolingualism as an approach to uh, a diagnosis of a delay or disorder. Um, And it's just, I mean, we, I don't know if we want to get into it or not, but yeah. That's that's all I'm going to say. All. Okay, because <laughs> we could keep going. We could keep going for another hour, but ah, we're not. No. For maybe, sure, no, maybe, we're not going to do maybe that. Maybe another episode. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was lovely talking to you. Finally, I hope we get to do it again. Maybe you know, in three years or so. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm working full time, so maybe it'll take less than three years. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claudia, for being with us. We're going to link everything, um, all your resources and your Instagram profile in our show notes so that everybody who wants to um, come find you, they can easily get in touch with you. Thank you. It would be my pleasure and my joy to be able to support anyone who's listening. So yes, please reach out if you have any questions or concerns about what you just heard. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you. Thank you.